the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 2 this Wednesday, July 27th, we do so as we do every week with one of the happiest warriors I know, Representative David Schweikert. He is uh, both happy and a warrior. David, welcome back. How are things going? I wouldn't right now say I'm not happy. I like to think right now I'm a cranky warrior. Are you cranky? Uh, I am intensely cranky. I'm wandering through right now the tunnels underneath the Capitol. I control the floor in about a half an hour, so I'm on my way up there to go. What are you going to do with it? Manage over. I'm actually going to spend some time sort of walking through the idiot argument the White House wants to have. Are we in recession? Are we not in recession? Two months of or two quarters of negative GDP, oh, that's not a real recession. Screw everyone. I'm sorry. Look at the data. People in my community and across the country are getting poorer every single day. If you live in the Phoenix area and you work and you have not gotten a pay raise, you now are donating six weeks of your labor for free. You are working for a month and a half and getting no compensation because prices have gone up so much. And if you're in the average where you've gotten a pay hike, you work for a month for free in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. And that's and so the, the, the Democrats want to argue, oh, well, we're not in a real recession. Okay, let's not talk about recession. Let's just talk about a misery index. How much more miserable are people's lives today than they were a year and a half ago? The weird part about the misery index itself is that it usually counts unemployment, and that's what's kind of interesting about this whole debate, isn't it? Well, you're going back to the 1970s version, but our demographics are really different. Remember, we're in a weird world right now, um, and, and there's some arguments on the way we're collecting unemployment data. Yeah, that's where I wanted you to go. That's Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Understand, um, because the traditional way is unemployment is those people who are looking for a job who don't have one. Right. What happens if you have millions and millions of people that aren't actually even considered to be part of the labor pool anymore because either they stopped working or the way they look for jobs and the types of jobs they look at, they don't actually pop up in the labor statistics of being unemployed. So yeah, this actually, is like having less felonies when you redefine a felony to a misdemeanor, right? Oh, well, we have the, right? This is the same thing. Actually, yeah. I, I hate to say that's a brilliant example. Yeah. Well, um, so, you don't have to hate so to say actually, No, no, there's actually a couple different indexes, and that's one of the things I'm going to do on the floor in about a half an hour, is show that there's a big diversion between one done by the Labor Department and one done by a Bureau of Labor Statistics on what real unemployment is. And, you know, I, I know this stuff gets a little geeky, but my concern is if you don't admit you have a problem, it's really hard to fix it. Right. 
And, and I see a number of things going on in the economy that make me very, very nervous. And we already know inflation now is structural. Uh, a few months ago when I would be on the show with you, you know, you, you sometimes were, would say, well, you know, they're telling us it's transitory. Right. And I'd say no. Right. The problem is at a certain point, fuel costs and, and, and real estate costs and other things get built into the actual supply chain and therefore they become structural. And then you start the wage price spiral, which we're definitely in. And it may take, you know, the Federal Reserve can either break the economy, matter of fact, push up unemployment and really increase misery. Or if we don't do something like that and Congress isn't willing to do things to really spice up either savings rates, so pull that liquidity out of the economy, or really you know, jack up productivity, we may be in for a very long inflationary cycle. And, and, and that's going to just destroy people, destroy young people and particularly seniors. Yeah, I'm glad you're putting it out there and doing this, David, because this is the part that the White House is getting away with, or at least hoodwinking enough people with, in regard to whether we're in a uh, recession or not. I was I was watching Steve Moore earlier talking about how in – in uh, in previous cases uh, with Federal Reserve chairman who spoke to the public, whether it's Volcker or Alan Greenspan, they would in these kinds of moments talk about the government spending. And he thinks that it was a real dereliction today for Powell not to even mention the issue of government spending, because that is a what's contributing to it. But B, there's this other thing. You're right. You're right. People can't even those who are employed can't afford what they could a year ago. And, and so what happens So what happens though when you haven't been able to ratchet down your lifestyle fast enough? You still got to drive to work. You still got to pay your rent. You, you may have now changed to some off-brand products. So we actually see the growth of credit card debt. Um, we're seeing beginning the crashing of savings accounts, uh, dollar amounts, uh, you know, the liquidity and checking account. And those are all sort of things telling you there's real stressors coming. People are trying to maintain their lifestyle, but they're using now other means to do that. And that lets you know some bad things are coming. And and by the way, with the rate hikes, it's going to be harder for people to try and compensate with certain borrowing, too, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, it gets much more expensive. Yeah. So the percentage of if you're someone that's trying to live on credit cards, you're going to start seeing more of your income going to finance the debt that's right. that you use to maintain your lifestyle. That's right. And um, home ownership becomes tougher, too, doesn't it? Well, you're already seeing that. You're, you're already seeing some of the, home, um, the the contracts for new homes starting to you know, come off the rails. Right. By the way, David, how important to you is this notion of ownership society, home ownership, et cetera? Oh, I mean, this, of course this was always course important to me. That's still a goal, isn't it? Well, look... Um, Think about the way you treat a rental car compared to yeah, your own. Right. Never take and it to the car wash for one. You, yeah, but, th- but that's what happens to you in your neighborhood. Right. The, the fact of the matter is a society of people that are beholden to the landlord um, is, is a problem. Um, because there's even, there's even a whole thing that someone that's a renter, you may be a wonderful person. But you don't actually vest the community the same way someone that's an owner does. Absolutely. You don't vest to your church right. the same way. You don't vest. And, 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 and we see that. So what happens when you have a society where 
huge portion of your population live in an apartment, live in a rental house, yeah. live in a duplex, and they're tra- and they become transitory. Yeah, you get a transitory you, you population. Is not transitory inflation, but transitory like population. Like yeah, church yeah. from my community. Yeah, and we're seeing that. So, so there are cascade events even outside just building wealth. Um, that functionally, uh, one day, you know, that home is your forced savings account. It used to be your forced savings account for retirement. Right. Right. David, this is the psychological question we do once in a while, and I need to ask you it now, because do the Democrats who are um, parroting the line uh, from the administration that this is not a recession, that two quarters of negative growth is not a technical explanation for a recession? Do they even believe it or are they just do they think that do they really believe what they're saying or do they think that they're saying something that they can get away with because they have to? David, I may have lost you for a second. No, no you're back. Oh, okay, Sorry, great. You, yeah, I was just going to ask you, did the Democrats believe what they're saying when they say that this is not yeah. a recession and that two quarters of negative growth is, I, 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 yeah. My answer isn't going to be satisfying. Okay. I don't care. Okay. I don't care whether they believe it or not. Okay, let's pretend it, 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 Let's pretend they're being technically accurate, like yeah. lawyers have this bad habit of doing of the technical definition is there's a committee that decides if we're in recession. Yeah. Fine. Let's now let's get back to the point. Let's talk about people. Good. Do the are the people of this country? Are you more miserable? Are you poor? Are you less prosperous? Is your future more miserable today than it was a year and a half ago? And the answer is yes. And stop trying to play word games of are we in recession? Are we not in recession? Let's actually start thinking about how do you make people's lives better? Mm-hmm. That is the damn job of being a member of Congress. And anymore around here, the only job this place cares about is this next election cycle and Democrats not getting slaughtered. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing some press conferences with the Speaker of the House about two, three months ago where she was saying, I don't expect us to lose the House. She probably had to say that. She ain't saying that now anymore, though, is she? Not really. I don't think so. I don't think she is. Is the speaker of the speaker of the house isn't talking about about keeping the the, the house of representatives anymore? Is she? Um. Uh, let's not jump. Okay. Let's not jump. Hey, they're waving at me. Believe me not. All right. No, you go do it. Go to it. You're okay. No, I'm just <laughs> on the on the house right now, and I'm going to work my way back to the courtroom <laughs> okay. because I may have to take the floor in a couple minutes. All right, God's breaking all sorts of rules, but I'm running through the back. No, go there get we- him, David Schweiker. You go get him. I, I, I'll look forward to your floor speech, and I'm sorry. Uh, I think the uh, the tunnel's there in the reception. But uh, in any way, great. Go get him, and uh, we'll catch up with you. We'll have a lot to talk about next week. Gosh knows. Goodness knows. Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're looking for a really remarkable and unique investment opportunity with a great return for the investors, check out my friends at Y Refi. What they are offering is a fixed no-load interest rate up to ten and a quarter percent return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really good people who are doing very well by helping others, and you can be too. If you're interested in this, check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, and R-E-F-Y.com, investyrefi.com. 
com 855-316-3087 is how to give them a call. That's 855-316-3087. You know, it's amazing how many fronts we have to fight on. It's amazing how actually uh, united we are and uh, how... Um, how united we are despite the differences on the margins. Uh, think about something that everyone has had to ramp up on uh, that hasn't probably been the main issue for a lot of conservatives, but it's this push on green energy. Yes, we've always um, had concerns about it, but never have we been uh, so forced to push back so hard because never have we faced an administration so ardent in forcing us to change our lives. Our friends at Issues and Insights uh, put it this way. Joe Biden uh, said, we're going to build a different future, with one with clean energy and good-paying jobs. And how this is literally, uh, how the uh, climate crisis, as he said last week, is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. Right about the time Biden was giving that speech, the World Economic Forum painted a picture of what Biden's future would look like. Suffice it to say, if you like socialism, you'll love it because it involves a radical transformation of our economy that brings the end of private ownership of things like cars, phones, laptops and other electronic devices. The World Economic Forum begins by admitting something that the left usually refuses to acknowledge, that there aren't enough metals around to power everything with clean energy. Uh, writes uh, Winnie Ye at the World Economic Forum. She's the head of, um, of their responsible sourcing. Great title. Quote, the transition from fossil fuels to renewables will need large supplies of critical metals such as cobalt, lithium, nickel, to name a few. Shortages of these minerals could raise the costs of clean energy technologies, close quote. Just how large a supply is she talking about? Even assuming that all the metals in use today are recycled, the World Bank estimates that the production of these minerals would have to increase roughly 500 percent by 2050 to meet the demand for clean energy technologies. This means massively mining the stuff which, as we've continued to point out, is hugely damaging to the environment and far, far more damaging than drilling for oil. Mining has been called the blind spot of green energy transition, Yi writes. On land, it has been associated with biodiversity loss, overuse of water resources, tailings, waste, labor, and geopolitical issues. The stuff also can be mined from the ocean, but more than 100 Environmental groups are opposed to deep sea mining and more than 653 marine science and policy experts from over 44 countries have called for a moratorium on it because of the harm it would cause. So if raping the earth and ravaging the seas to get the minerals needed for clean energy are off the table, what's left? Aha, the global elites have the answer. Just get everyone to give up ownership of their cars, cell phones, and other stuff that needs power to operate. If we all shared this stuff, we'd need less of it. Ye does, in fact, say, quote, more sharing can reduce ownership of idle equipment and thus material usage, close quote. Other leftists have been singing the same song. Last year, a transportation minister in the United Kingdom declared that we have to move away from, quote, 20th century thinking centered around private vehicle ownership and towards greater flexibility with personal choice and low carbon shared 
transport, close quote. Of course, getting people to give up their cars for the good of the planet just isn't going to be that easy. And so, so to enable a broader transition from ownership to usership, the way we design things and systems needs to change, too. Introducing more of these circular models, the report says, requires significant effort and changes to our current way of life. Got it? Changes to our current way of life. We can't be the only ones who look at this and wonder, what is the point? What is the bloody point? Even if the left's clean energy vision was to become a reality, the impact on global temperatures would be negligible if existent at all. And to achieve the meaningless result, we would either have to ravage the land and oceans or learn to live in Soviet style in a Soviet style state or some even worse combination of the two. In other words, there'd be widespread deprivation, tremendous loss of individual liberty and a massively expanded government pre- uh, presence in exchange for really nothing. That is the future that this Biden administration intends to build for us. We say no thanks. We'll keep our gas-powered cars and trucks, our cell phones and laptops, thank you very much, because an ownership society powered by fossil fuels is what has produced today's unprecedented and widespread prosperity, not just here, not just for Americans, but in what even we used to call the third world. We hope there are enough other people willing to say no to Biden's future and that it never comes to pass. And that 100 years from now, our heirs will look back on today and wonder why so many supposedly smart people lost their minds in the early 21st century over what turned out to be phony. I'll I'll repeat what I said to Bill. When you break down the policy prescriptions the left is pushing on us when it comes to transforming energy and uh, protecting the environment, yeah, I think everyone realizes there's a negligible achievement Begging the question, why do it? Because all they want is for us to be less comfortable. They hate the fact that we're comfortable. They hate the fact that we have private ownership. And you know what? There is something nagging in them about Americans, their independence, and their cars. There's something underlying this. There's something about America and the auto industry that is a love affair. Yeah, we get mad at the auto industry here and there and from time to time and for good reasons sometimes and not so good reasons at others. But Americans like their cars. Americans like their cars, which is why the left doesn't like cars, because it doesn't like Americans. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to welcome, I believe, for the first time to this show, uh, Scott McKay. He is the publisher of the Hayride uh, website, which is a uh, news website based out of Louisiana, the author of a brand new book, The Revivalist Manifesto, How Patriots Can Win the Next American Era. And he has a uh, essay uh, today uh, at the American Spectator. No, America isn't over. Mr. McKay, Scott, thank you for joining us. Much appreciated. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Seth. It's an honor. You betcha. Thank you. Um, sir, I uh, usually do this with first-time guests, and uh, I'd like to do the same with you. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, a little autobiography, how you came to be doing what you're doing. 
Sure. Uh, well, I, you know, I've been in, uh, in and out of publishing pretty much my whole adult life. I actually started with a sports magazine when, when I was in my 20s. Um, and the Internet, Internet ate our subscriber base, so uh, uh, that was it for, the, for being a print journalist. Um, but I uh, did a few things uh, in corporate sales and so forth. And um, round about 2009, I started realizing that politics was – Kind of everything, right? Like, you know, there's the old thing of you may not be interested in politics, yep. but it's interested in you. Yep. And, um, you know, I just decided I'd give it a go to, to, to do a conservative publication here in Louisiana. And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, and I, you know, for about 10 years, I've been writing columns for the American Spectator, had some book publishers talk to me about writing a book. And the idea I had was uh, to do the Revivalist Manifesto, uh, which is sort of a, you know, a, a treatise on the current state of American politics and history and, you know, where we go from uh, from here. Well, thanks for that, Scott, because I was reading your piece, No, America Isn't Over, um, and it led me to your book because it excerpts uh, from your brand new book, which is the Revivalist Manifesto. And I started reading it. I bought the book online and I started reading it and it's fantastic. So I want to commend it to the audience. There's still time for people to get their summer reading in. And I wanted to go through a couple of thoughts um, that I think are relevant for the very days we're in right now, which is obviously why you also wrote the book. If I can start in your essay, uh, you look at some polling that shows uh, a disgruntled attitude towards the state of the country. Um, uh, In fact, so much so that You know, we have talk in the air of is America over? Are we on the precipice of a civil war? And you write the good news is that America is not ending. Do you want to give us your thesis? Well, the uh, the uh, the basic thesis of the book, actually, I need to, to give credit to a guy named James Pearson. Who's oh, I know James. He's great. Yes, uh, who wrote a book back in 2015 called Shattered Consensus. Mm-hmm. And the format that Pearson uses to to analyze all of this is that we have had three you know major eras in American political history. The first one, Thomas Jefferson won the election of 1800, and that was pretty much it for the Federalist Party and the Democrats pretty much governed America from 1800 to 1860 when Abe Lincoln was elected. You had the Civil War, and then what came out of that was a Republican era of dominance that lasted until the Great Depression began, and then the current era began in 1932 with FDR's uh, whitewash of Herbert Hoover. And even though the most successful presidents, arguably, of this era have been Republicans, it's been a Democrat era. You know, the welfare state, the regulatory state, all of the different things that were put in place in the 20 years or so between 1932 and 1952 um, pretty much have governed where America is from a from a, you know, a federal government standpoint um, and so forth. And so this era is ending. I, I, I don't know if it's going to end the way the first era ended in 1860 or the second era ended in 1932. My guess is it'll be more like the latter. Um, but there will be a new, um, you know, template that America is going to operate from going forward uh, after the next, you know, whatever, three to five years worth of, I think, pretty rough times that we all kind of see coming. It, it's um, a fascinating thesis the, on the history. Keep going. Yeah, think, I'll, I'll come back to it. Go ahead. Yeah, well, Keep going. Well, and, and one more point on that yeah. is that this current era has largely been the product of a consensus between 
essentially what were William F. Buckley conservatives and Daniel Patrick Moynihan liberals. Uh-huh. Um, and you can't really find either one at, at, in the mainstream of the two political parties. I mean, Joe Manchin may be the last of the Moynihan liberals left, um, and they hate him in the Democrat Party. Yeah. And really, kind of Buckley slash National Review conservatism is kind of out of fashion. Um, you know, and it's been replaced largely by sort of America first slash MAGA slash what I call revivalist conservatism, which is much more aggressive and wants to go on offense. Let me hold you right um, there. Let me let me pause you there. That's a big piece I'd like to talk to you about. And we're hitting sure. a break. This was a short segment. We have a longer one coming up, Scott, if that's OK. Let me pick up on that Buckley mm-hmm. uh, distinction you're drawing. Uh, our guest is Scott McKay. He is the publisher of The Hayride, which you can read uh, daily. But his brand spanking new book, The Revivalist Manifesto, How Patriots Can Win the Next American Era. I'm Seth. He's Scott McKay. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leapson Show. I am Seth. Delighted to have with us author and uh, publisher, editor Scott McKay. His brand new book, The Revivalist Manifesto, How Patriots Can Win the next American era. Scott, if I can pick up on where we left off before the break, uh, you're drawing a bit of a distinction uh, between Buckley conservatism, uh, several distinctions, but one of them is a Buck- William F. Buckley uh, as distinct from the modern, what we might call America First or MAGA movement. Can I step back a second, if, I, if you'll allow me? Because I love whether it was you or Jim Pearson's notion that for so much of our history, we haven't been so much a two-party system but a one-and-a-half-party system, is that how, if, if I have that right, because you had um, Republicans nibbling on the edges of what the Democrats believed uh, and, uh, and instantiated here ever since FDR. But I wonder if it's fair to say that what Buckley ushered in was Goldwater and Reaganism, and Goldwater perhaps changed the notion of a one-and-a-half-party system to a real two-party system. You think of Philip Schlafly's title of a choice, not an echo. And I wonder if, if that makes sense or, or, or how you square that with the notion that there is a real distinction between Buckley and America Firstism. Well, what I would say is, you know, I, the, the, uh, the choice part was more aspirational than, than reality, which is not a criticism, by the way. Yeah. Um, it's just a, it's it's a a reflection on on where we were. Ronald Reagan had eight, maybe the eight most successful years of an American president of all. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, I, I mean, some of his core platform was that he wanted to roll back the welfare state. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, that was just not possible to do. Um, and if you go and you look at when we've had these, the beginnings of these eras where we've set new political consensuses, um, it, it's taken, you know, a generation of one party completely dominating the scene. I mean, you know, the Democrats won, I think it was six elections uh, or five or six elections between 1800 and, and, you know, 1828. You had Republicans winning, you know, every election between 1860 and 1884. Um, so it takes, you know, 20 years to really kind of cement things in place. And the problem that Reagan had, or the, that conservatives had after Reagan, was, you know, you, you basically re, uh, reverted to a Bush Republican style of politics, which was not transformational and not reformational at all. Um, and, I, you know, the Republican Party, until Trump came along, was really 
kind of okay with managed decline, both of it of the party and to some degree the country as well. And you know, so I think the opportunity was there when Reagan got elected that you could have started the fourth era. It's just you didn't have the follow-on leadership behind Reagan to make that happen. Um, and Buckley came from a time, I mean, at least the beginning of Buckley came from a time right at the very end of that 20, 25-year period of dominance that the Democrats had established the New Deal and all of the, the accoutrements of, a, of an expanded federal government. So he comes from a lot different time um, as a conservative than you know we do here in 2022 when we're at the end of that uh, expansion of government and it's it's no longer viable as a as a means of of getting anything done. I mean, if you look at the, the places where the Democrats are really in control and really are able to put their 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 plan in place are the cities, which are disaster areas across the board. They're shooting galleries. Nothing works. They can't fill potholes in a timely manner or educate kids or do much of anything else. And people are leaving out of the cities as fast as they can. You look, though, at all that uh, social and economic, uh, shall we say, destruction, and you say, but hold on, because relief is coming. The the new era of the Republican Party is coming to rescue that. You're optimistic about where we're headed, even though our cities are falling apart. Yes. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I, I go by the, uh, you know, the old Charles Krauthammer, excuse me, Charles Krauthammer saying of, you know, what can't continue won't continue. Yeah. Um, Baltimore can't continue, right? right? I mean, right. I, now, I, I, I'm not here to say, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to completely sweep Baltimore clean and turn it into paradise. Right. That's probably not going to happen. But, you know, Baltimore may just be a ghost town. Um, and, and things, you know, may move on and, and you'll have nice things someplace else. Um, you know, and what I would say is, and certainly I would include Trump as part of the revivalist movement, sure. um, but it, it's got to last a lot longer than Trump, because let's face it, Trump's in for maybe four more years and that's it. Um, and this is a 20-year uh, program. So really the standard for revivalism, I would say, would be somebody like a Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. um, who in, in large measure is kind of a Trump 2.0. He mm-hmm. does a lot of the same things that, that you know Trump wanted to do, but he tends to be a little bit smoother when he does them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and regular folks who may not you know, think of Trump as, as, as serious or they don't like the mean tweets or whatever would look at a guy like Ron DeSantis not from an ideological perspective so much as a as a well this guy is a pro at the job um and, you know and i think once you have that standard set that hey this is what you have to do if you're going to be a republican politician I, you you can kick off that next era i don't think the mitch mcconnell version of the gop that kind of still holds sway in washington i don't think that's a party good enough to kick off a new era and and to you know and to revive America, full agreement. Um, but full I do agreement. think yeah. the Generation X DeSantis standard is something that can get it done. Do you think uh, we're talking to Scott McKay, author of the Revivalist Manifesto: How Patriots Can Win the Next American Era? Scott, do you think it's it would be a fair thing to say that? Um, the difference between Trump and DeSantis in an election, in a national election, is that because you'll hear this as much as I do, you do probably already, um, that what the media, the elites will say uh, about uh, DeSantis will be the same thing they said about Trump. It's the same thing they've said about Republicans always. It's just social media made it louder. But 
maybe DeSantis makes Republicans feel better. Is that a fair is that a fair angle? The the incoming from the left will be about the same or equivalent. But Ron DeSantis is um, an easier an easier robe for a lot of Republicans to wear. I think that's probably true. Um, And I would also say that DeSantis's style in fighting back from a lot of those things um, is you know, really, really practiced and well done. Mm-hmm. I mean, he. This is a guy who, you know, and he, he's caught the media saying things about him that were patently untrue, mm-hmm. um, and and has never really shied away from him. But it's it's just sort of a a, a very professional, um, passionate, but not. He's not a yeller or a screamer. I mean, he just tells you how it is. Um, and that, you know, I, the, the analogy I'll draw is you watch Ron DeSantis in some of these press conferences, and it looks a little bit like Nick Saban doing his press conferences uh-huh, uh-huh, at the University uh-huh, of Alabama. Uh-huh. The media in Alabama won't, they won't ask him a tough question because yeah. they get chewed up. Yeah. Um, and DeSantis does a lot of that same thing. And Republican politicians of the, you know, the Bush stripe, just absolutely never did master that with the media. I mean, they just took it when the media gave it to them, and it dispirited Republican voters, I think. And and so it's a you know, Trump is kind of sloppy in how he handles it, although, you know, the guy is definitely fights for himself. Um, And DeSantis just does it. He's easy when he does it. And and it's, you know, I, I think that's kind of the way you handle it, besides the fact that, you know, Americans don't trust the legacy corporate media anymore. They don't have any credibility when they start these attacks, and I don't think that they're as, as effective as they used to be. Scott McKay, this has been fantastic. I hope it can be a down payment. You've raised a lot of great questions uh, for us going forward. We talk a lot about conservatism here, what it is, what it should be, what it means, what it should mean. And uh, I read your mm-hmm. essay, uh, your piece today over at uh, The Spectator, which uh, excerpt your new book, and it was just ripe, uh, ripe for me to talk to you today. So I hope this can be a down payment. We can do a lot more of this in the future. Absolutely, Seth, anytime. You betcha. Thank you. Let me give one more plug to the book because uh, it makes you think, folks. It makes you think a lot, and it's really smart, at least uh, from my uh, uh, beginnings of it. And that's uh, Scott McKay is the author, The Revivalist Manifesto, How Patriots Can Win the Next American Era. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We're going to uh, continue to pursue our, pursue our discussion on conservatism, what it means, what it should mean, with the great Charles Kessler, editor of the Claremont Review of Books, at the top of the next hour. Scott and I are going to get into it a little bit in the future, too. I am not on board, I don't think, and, and just it was too short of a time for us to get too deeply into it, but I'll have him back for a longer conversation. I think he'd be open to my point. I am not on board that there is a big distinction between William F. Buckley's conservatism and the modern Make America Great Again conservatism uh, in in many respects, starting with what I wrote about in the book um, American Greatness, where we do compare the origins of the modern conservative movement uh, kicked off by William Buckley to the MAGA agenda, the America First agenda, and it's almost identical. Uh, you can, if you want a cheat sheet on this, you can obviously still get the book American Greatness by Buskirk, Chris Buskirk and myself, or just go read online National Review's first um, 1955 issue where William Buckley writes what he calls a credenda, basically a mission statement, and look at the um, 
what 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 would we call it six or seven uh, items as to why they founded National Review, because I think with just very small changes, really mutatis mutandis type changes that update us uh, in, in, in the times we live in, uh, I think you'll see it's the same agenda, whether it's about the administrative state, whether it's about internationalism, uh, whether it's about uh, the great society, whether it – well, it was pre-great society, the credenda, but whether it's about the New Deal and the welfare state, the New Deal kicked off, and the fight against the liberal elite. I think you will find it much more the same than Scott does. Scott and I will continue the conversation in the future with you all. Uh, But uh, I'll pick it up with Charles Kessler in a few moments uh, as well. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.